This audio version of Hearts of Purpose by Gail Grace Nordskog has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by the hosts of the Monstrous Regiment podcast. Please visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to access the rest of this audiobook and many more. 6. Lisa Schidler, Eastbrook Church, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Focus. Helping and Training Special Needs Orphans. To whom much is given, much will be required. Luke 12.48 God has entrusted me with a great treasure of faith and granted me godly examples and mentors. Nothing makes my family more excited than hearing that someone who was lost has come into the kingdom of God. I grew up surrounded by this passion for the Great Commission and that people from every tribe and tongue and nation would one day worship together before the throne of God in heaven. If you look at the 1040 window today, the place on the map where the world's one billion unreached people live, it lies just between China and Jerusalem. The Chinese church believes God is challenging them to pick up the baton that the missionaries brought them and to carry the gospel back to Jerusalem from China, across Central Asia and the Muslim world. When Adam, my husband, and I heard of this vision, we felt that God could actually be calling us to China first in order to reach the Muslim world. Sometimes God works that way, and I have learned to be obedient and not to question why. God will reveal his plans in time. Sometimes he only shows us one step at a time, but if we trust him to be sovereign, we will see his work. Someone prayed for me. When I was born in Milwaukee in 1968, my parents were stationed with the military and were shepherding a small congregation and reaching out to students at the university nearby. An older lady in their church, Agnes, wrote them a note saying that she was so happy they finally had a little girl and that she wanted to do something for them. As her gift to them, she promised to faithfully pray for me every day. Wow, I wonder what she prayed for me. At only 10 months old, I went on my first mission trip when my family moved to a town in southern Somalia. My parents weren't the first in our family to follow God's call. My family has a heritage of ministry. One great-great-grandfather made his way to the New World from Scotland and became a lumberjack out on the Canadian frontier. He was the life of the party with his fiddle and wasted years just having a good time when, one day out in the woods, about to cut down a tree, he had a vision of Jesus. He came home and nailed his fiddle to the wall, a completely changed man. He became an itinerant evangelist, traveling all over the Dakota territories, preaching and setting up Sunday schools and eventually churches. Another great-grandfather attended Princeton Seminary and proceeded to sell life insurance. He was quite successful, but God was pursuing him, and one day he quit his job and ended up in Wheaton, Illinois, where he helped found a church and later was instrumental in founding halfway houses in Chicago for the down and out. He then felt called to foreign missions and packed up his family and left for Mexico. I used to envy people with exciting conversion stories of their lives before and after Christ, but I have come to appreciate more and more the privilege I have of being part of a family that has faithfully followed Christ for generations. While the gift of Christian parents cannot guarantee faith, as a child, I heard the gospel presented clearly by my parents, and I wholeheartedly accepted it as a very natural part of my life. I knew God as my loving Heavenly Father and prayed and brought my needs to Him as young as two years old. My parents always invited people in and brought them home to stay with us, 
some for a short time and some for longer. Hardly anyone remained unchanged because the word of God has a way of changing lives. I constantly saw people's lives transformed by Christ. When I was eight years old, we moved to Benin, West Africa, for three months. My dad covered for a mission doctor whose wife had contracted cancer and needed treatment. I loved Africa. The lush tropical landscape and exotic animals amazed me, but the local church was even more exciting. I could hear the music pulsating from the building long before I got to the church. They didn't have anything fancy, just feet, hands, voices, and a few drums, but they could sure make music. I also remember how poverty consumed most people's lives. My dad was kept busy running the hospital and learning the local language. My mom made bandages and sterilized materials and visited patients. She also helped at a feeding station for starving children. Sometimes I went along and helped hold bottles and tried to spoon milk or porridge into emaciated little bodies. As I got to know some of the children, I noticed how much we were the same. Eventually, one special little girl I had been feeding died. My parents didn't shield me from the hard realities of life. They openly and honestly discussed problems, and then we prayed and brought it all to the Father. My faith stretched and grew, and I began to hear God's call on my life. At eight years old, I already felt God calling me to mission work. Reaching the lost naturally followed from my reading and understanding of Scripture. My mom made sure that I read lots of missionary biographies while I was growing up. One of my dad's heroes, Paul Brandt, a missionary surgeon in India, became the world's specialist in hand surgery from helping lepers. I have actually met him, as well as Corey Tenboom and Brother Andrew, two other Christian heroes who sat at the table in our family home. They made a deep impression on me as a child. When I was in high school, my dad decided to quit practicing medicine in order to serve our church full-time. Our family knew that this would entail sacrifice, but we all willingly supported my dad. Our church focused on missions. It chose two couples to support, one in Egypt and one in China, both unreached places with tremendous spiritual needs. As the church grew, it continued to focus on the 1040 window and the places in the world that have barriers to hearing the gospel. I had wonderful, godly youth leaders and a dynamic youth group in high school. As an urban church, we had a wide range of teens and frequently reached out to unchurched, needy youth. We started a serious prayer meeting on Wednesday nights and saw some amazing answers to prayer in our schools and in our families. I met Adam, my future husband, in this youth group. My senior year, I became sick, not seriously ill, but I had long-term fatigue. By God's grace, I was able to get through, although it took great perseverance. I learned to trust God much more through this difficulty. I read all the collective works of Amy Carmichael, one of my missionary heroes at this time. She, too, had struggled with illness for a long time. Her works left a deep impression on me of faith and trust in God despite difficulties. She fought desperately to rescue poor children from temple prostitution and lifelong servitude in India. After high school, I attended Wheaton College in Illinois, whose motto reads, For Christ and His Kingdom. The world-famous speakers who came in regularly to speak at the chapel inspired and challenged me. I decided to major in the Bible. My junior year of college, I spent a semester in Jerusalem studying Hebrew and traveling through the lands of the Bible. Not only did I learn a lot that semester, but Adam also studied abroad that year at Hebrew University, so we had some time together. We had many late afternoon talks in the garden on Mount Zion under the pomegranate and poinsettia trees.
and then Adam would race down the mountain, across the valley, and up the next peak to catch the last bus back to Mount Scopus before nightfall. Sometimes the buses got stoned during the uprising. A couple of times Adam had to duck and the windows broke, but he never got hurt. We both graduated from college a semester early in December of 1989 and joyfully moved back to Milwaukee so that we could be in the same city once again. One professor near the university opened up his home every Friday night and invited international students to come. Adam and I started going and met many Chinese students. A couple of months after the Tiananmen Square uprising in China, President Bush gave an amnesty to all of the Chinese students in America at the time so they could stay in the U.S. and not have to return to China if they chose. Because of this very unusual turn of events and the tremendous disillusionment of the scholars with how their government had treated the students, suddenly the overseas China students were wide open spiritually and were questioning everything they had been taught. Adam and I stepped into this ministry at just the right time. We started a seeker's Bible study and saw many students come to Christ. The Holy Spirit moved powerfully among the Chinese. At the same time, I got a call asking our church to host a Chinese visiting scholar. Our church had sent an English teacher to China, and this lady was her colleague, who had been sent to the U.S. to study English. She had become a Christian just before leaving China for the University of Illinois. However, after six months in Illinois, she really had not found Christian fellowship, and she wanted this before returning to China. So we invited her to stay with my family for the rest of her time in the U.S. The university allowed her to transfer, and she even signed up for some Bible classes at Trinity while she stayed with us. Nancy blessed us and our church tremendously. She was just like a thirsty sponge, soaking up every bit of spiritual nourishment she could get. She treasured her time with us, going to church and having spiritual fellowship, Bible study, worship, prayer times, serving others, visiting the sick, and helping the poor. She loved every minute of it and did not take any of it for granted. Nancy told us that her mother had died when she was only 10 years old, and then her family had gone through the Chinese Cultural Revolution, so no one ever talked about faith. Her education had gotten cut short, and then her father had died, and the authorities had sent her to the countryside to learn from the peasants. But she secretly taught herself English by listening to radio broadcasts on the farm. Miraculously, when the Cultural Revolution finally ended, she passed the English exams and became an English teacher, married, and had two children. She felt so excited to be chosen to study abroad, but then the Tiananmen Square uprising happened, and she did not know if she would be allowed to go. As she agonized over this, Lauren, who was a field worker from our church, met her, shared the gospel with her, and prayed for her. Right away, Nancy received her passport. In response, she prayed with Lauren to receive Christ, and then she traveled to a very tense Beijing to apply for her visa. While in Beijing, waiting for her visa interview, she stayed with her aunt and uncle. As she talked with them, she could not help telling them about her new faith in Christ. Her uncle, a powerful man and a Communist Party member, told her that her grandparents had been Christians. He and her father had even attended a missionary school as boys. God had had his hand on her life for a long time. As the time for her studies in the U.S. came to an end, Nancy had to decide if she would go back to China or not. We encouraged her to go back and to share her faith with her family. Most scholars did not go back at that time, but she prayed about it and decided to return. Adam asked me to marry him in March, and I said yes. God had clearly brought Adam and me together, and we looked forward to serving God together as a couple. 
A friend of my dad's invited us to go with him to China in May. My parents and I visited several places in China with Derek. We met up with Lauren, our church field worker, along with some of her students, and she encouraged me to consider teaching English in China. I saw how fruitful teaching English could be and how well her students received it and listened to her. Many believers told us their stories about how they had gone through tremendous persecution during the Cultural Revolutions. Many of the pastors had been in prison, and so their wives had ended up leading the church in their absence. One pastor who had been imprisoned in Henan for 15 years had never married, so the church designated one single lady to bring him food and care for his needs in prison. She faithfully sent him food and supported him throughout the whole 15 years, and when he got out, they were married. At a time when the Chinese government rationed basic necessities, she sacrificed a lot. We met another group of pastors in Beijing. Everyone had stories of suffering and persecution, but each one glowed with joy and thanksgiving for everything the Lord had done for them and their churches. One Christian doctor had been demoted to cleaning out the toilets for years. Although humbling, he thanked God for his work because he could keep a small pocket New Testament in the latrine area and read it there in peace. Other pastors who had been in jail told us how they had only had one Bible in the whole prison, but everyone wanted to read it. So they ripped out the pages, and each believer got one book of the Bible, or sometimes half a book. Then they began to memorize the portions they had. That way, they could just ask the person who had John to read John to them, or the Philippians man to read Philippians. In this way, they could keep encouraging each other from Scripture and not worry if the guards confiscated their precious book. God allowed China to grow in our hearts. Adam and I both felt called to mission work, especially in the Middle East and the Muslim world. But despite that, we could see that God had definitely put China directly in our path. We prayed about this. One of the interesting things the Chinese pastors had shared with us when we visited them in Beijing caught our attention. They had shared the Chinese church's vision to bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. They said that the Chinese church has had this vision for about 75 years. They said that in the first century, the gospel had mainly spread west from Jerusalem with the Apostle Paul, and then across the Roman Empire, and then eventually west from there to the New World. After the Great Awakening, the Western Church had really gotten serious about bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, and missionary societies and ventures were starting to bring the gospel to Asia and India. Adam and I decided to marry, finish grad school, and then go to China. As we told Nancy all about our trip to China, we shared how the believers in prison had found each other. They said that they could pick out other believers in prison because of their shining eyes. Nancy held on to this and told us that she would go back and look for shining eyes in China. She did go back shortly after our wedding and promptly won her family to Christ. Just a couple of weeks after she arrived, she wrote us a letter to tell us that she had found them, shining eyes. We knew this meant she had found fellowship. A couple of older ladies in her neighborhood turned out to be secret believers. They did not have any fellowship either, so she opened up her home and they started a church together. After our wedding in July of 1990, I started graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I got a master's degree in English with a focus on teaching English as a second language, ESL, so that I could teach in China. Meanwhile, Adam worked at a Caterpillar distributor in Milwaukee as the payroll manager and we continued working with internationals. Most of the students at that time were Chinese or Taiwanese, but we also met students from Iran, India, and Africa. 
I finished my master's thesis and graduated in 1992 after researching second language acquisition. Derek helped Adam and me to find a university teaching job in China at a medical college in Shenyang in northeastern China. We moved there in September of 1992. We spent two years in the far northeast of China learning language and culture and teaching English to college students. We loved China and doing what we felt called to do. We wanted to be obedient to the Great Commission from Matthew 28. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In August of 1994, we moved to central China, and I signed a contract to teach at Nancy's University. Adam and I got to live right next door to her family. Adam signed up for Chinese classes at the teacher's college next door. We got bicycles. We met together with other expatriates for fellowship. Right away, I met a British couple, John and Sue, who went to the city orphanage to volunteer. As a child, my mom had read me the story of Gladys Aylward and how she had taken in abandoned children and orphans in Shanxi, China, during World War II, and then walked with 100 children over the mountains to safety in Qian to escape the Japanese bombers. They were received by a Christian orphanage in Qian at that time. God miraculously saved them and provided for them all along this dangerous journey. So just a couple of weeks after arriving in Qian, I found myself on a bus one Saturday morning heading out to visit orphans. A small group of Chinese students from the Foreign Language College went with us, along with John and Sue and a family from New Zealand. The orphanage, located an hour outside the city in a rural area with a tall gray wall all around it, did not impress me. The compound consisted of simple brick one-story buildings with bare walls, cold cement floors, and drafty windows. The children hardly talked or made any noise, and the babies did not cry. The two staff people on duty, for a hundred kids, went about their duties without speaking either. A little sunlight filtered in, but otherwise the rooms appeared unlit and dark. First I noticed the older children hanging about the yard. Most of them had their heads shaved, presumably to prevent lice. Many of them had swollen bellies or sores, showing their varying degrees of malnutrition. Some obviously had disabilities or leaned over a crutch. A couple of older kids sat in wheelchairs. They all looked neglected and listless. When the bus pulled up, those who could came over to see if we brought them any food. I looked into a small building which seemed to house the seriously handicapped children. Some lay in bed, but many sat on little potty chairs all day. I was shocked. The smell made me sick. And for a cool fall day, the handicapped children barely had enough clothing covering them. I had no idea what to do. I spoke a little Chinese and tried talking to the children, but got little response. One of the students came in and asked me to go to the nursery. I followed them over to the next building. The outer room had five or six toddlers in low beds right near the door. The kids indoors could not walk. Jessica sat on a low bed there. She smiled and said hi. She knew the volunteers who came and was clearly happy to see them. After conversing with her, I went into the inner room, just a plain square room with wooden cribs pushed against the outside walls. There were 15 to 20 babies who lived in these cribs. Some of the smaller babies might be two to a crib, but the bigger ones had a crib to themselves. The cribs were built high for the staff, but they had low sides, which did not seem safe to me for the older babies, who could easily fall out onto the cement floor. 
The oldest boy in there that day, Jamie, later told us that they had scary rats at night, too. I saw Sue talking to the babies and singing them songs, holding them, changing them, and eventually feeding them. She gave them names and kept notes about whom she saw each week and who was no longer there. She did not speak much Chinese, so she just talked to the kids in English. The staff came in with a pot of milk toward the end of our visit and filled bottles. However, they did not have enough milk for everyone. As they started distributing bottles, they would say, This one can have some, but no, that one we do not feed. They literally starved some kids if they had a heart problem or serious illness. The state clearly had little resources to spend on orphans, and they actually practiced euthanasia to keep the population down. Sue explained more about what happened there, and, by her count, over 90% of the children died. She desperately wanted to save these kids, but you cannot feed kids once a week and sustain them. In the future, we tried to bring sausages with us to give the older kids because they needed protein in their diets, but the workers said it just made them sick since they were not used to it. I could not sleep that night. I had to do something to help. Sue said that the best way to help would be to foster a child. There had been one baby who had been fostered the last year and who was then adopted by a Dutch couple and was the first baby to ever be adopted from Jian. The orphanage could not even send in paperwork for the other babies because the babies did not survive long enough to go through the adoption process. We tried asking everyone we knew if they would foster a baby, but no one showed any interest. No one cared about orphans. The word orphan in Chinese carried a strong social stigma. Having survived the horrible cultural revolution, people just wanted to take care of their own family quietly and not cause any trouble. I knew one American teacher who had been in Qian and taken in an abandoned child and then had lost her job because of it. After a futile first week, Adam and I looked at each other and contemplated taking care of a baby ourselves. Having never been parents, we really had no idea what it would take, but by some providential coincidence, we had opposite schedules. Adam had morning classes, and I had afternoon classes. One hour a week, we both had mandatory political study, but aside from that one hour, we could actually juggle a baby between us. I asked Sue if the orphanage would consider foreigners as foster parents, and she was not too sure, but was willing to ask. Meanwhile, we talked to Nancy and her husband to see how it might affect our employment. Nancy's husband was worried and insisted that if we did this, we had to keep it secret and not tell anyone and not flaunt it. Adam and I weighed the risks and decided it was worth it to save a life. On October 8th, I went on the bus once again out to the orphanage. I told Adam before I left that I might come home with a baby, if the orphanage agreed. He smiled and said, Okay. I brought Amanda home that day. One of the Chinese students actually carried her up to our place, and I followed at a distance so that the people around us would not see me with her. We kept her secretly until July. If we had to go out, we carried her in a bag until we got into a taxi and away from our front gate. The orphanage started paperwork for her right away, but the Dutch agency rejected her because of her health. The orphanage just told us to find someone else. Well, our dear God had already found her forever family. She never left us. Adopting for us at that time took a true miracle, but God worked out every problem and provided all the resources we needed. Amanda totally blossomed as her health improved and everyone came to love her. I visited the orphanage again in January and met Nathan. He had just arrived there and I heard about him before even going into the nursery because he showed up with no feet. 
I went over to see for myself and picked him up to pray for him. He slapped me in the face. The staff person made a point of telling me how useless he was and not worth bothering about. She clearly would not put him on the feed list. That just made me pray harder for him. As I prayed for him, the Lord spoke to me and told me to get him out of there. I went home and told Adam about Nathan. He was open to helping another child. He adored Amanda. I told my neighbors that I felt that God wanted us to do this. Wanting to do the right thing, they nervously agreed. Their teenage son went with Adam out to the orphanage on his day off to talk to the officials about fostering Nathan. They must have been convincing because on Thursday they came home with Nathan and a bag of steamed meat buns. He ate and ate until he felt sick, and then he fell asleep holding a bun in his hand. My twin older brothers, Mark and Mike, are both doctors, and I called to talk to them right away about Nathan's medical needs. They assured me that with prosthetics, he would be just fine. We had hope for Nathan, while the state had not. Everyone needs hope. No one is disposable to God. He loves each precious person. We had a group of college students that fall who were meeting at our house for a weekly Bible study and encouragement. Our neighbor's son, plus a couple of the students who volunteered at the orphanage, came. They loved to see Amanda and Nathan. They had seen them in the state orphanage and now could see the amazing contrast in them after being taken home and loved. They longed to see some of the other kids have that chance. Together, we studied Blackaby's book, Experiencing God. Pastor Blackaby challenges Christians to look around them and see where the Holy Spirit is at work and then join him in that work. These students could so clearly see the hand of God at work in these two kids' lives. They had to get involved. One student, Marcia, first approached me about renting an apartment. As college students, they had no money. Marcia came from a very poor background in Gansu province and worked hard to stay in college. She showed me a couple rent ads for apartments near her school. The rent looked cheap, but it was way more than she could afford. She asked me if we could help their student group pay the rent for an apartment so that they could rescue five more kids. I had no idea what this decision would lead to, but I agreed to pray about it. Adam and I did pray, and then we talked to our family back home, since we would need to raise $300 per month. This was not a lot of money by U.S. standards, but we knew that it could mean a longer-term commitment, because we knew how quickly we would love these kids and not want to give them back. Everyone I talked to back home encouraged us and offered to help. They loved Amanda and Nathan, too, and had seen the transformation in them. One family in our church had already stepped forward to adopt Nathan, and had signed up with an American agency to get their paperwork to Beijing. Adam supported the ministry, too. He did not care if we had to eat ramen noodles and peanut butter sandwiches. We unselfishly gave our time, our money, and our love, embracing what God gave us and rejoicing. To really experience God working around you, you have to be willing to do what He wants and not have your own agenda. We did not know God's plan ahead of time. We just followed one step at a time. We told the students that we would support them and would help them rent an apartment. Marcia went and found a place. I put down a deposit, and the students proceeded to purchase the furnishings and set the place up. Meanwhile, I talked to Nancy about her church helping the students with this project. I wanted the church involved, and I knew it would bless her church. Their son was already a part of this. They discussed it and decided to send us one staff person, an older woman, to help oversee the children's new home. God knew they needed someone older and more long-term than just college students. 
Sister Ma was a huge blessing, and very enthusiastic from the beginning. Furthermore, we challenged Nancy's church to help support this in any way they could. Adam and I knew that as a tiny house group they had little, but they were growing and we strongly believed in tithing. Their church needed a service project. I knew they could not support the whole thing, but I wanted them to do what they could in obedience. They all agreed to support Sister Ma's salary. They also chose a name for this home, the Home of Eternal Love. The home officially opened on May 15, 1995, with not five, but six little ones. The students went out to the orphanage and showed them the photos of the apartment they had prepared and the schedule they had made of caregivers, and asked for five children. The orphanage had nothing to lose and everything to gain from this, since they would receive a sizable donation from every adoption, and they would not have to care for the children. They knew we took good care of Amanda and Nathan, and that their adoptions were proceeding smoothly, so they agreed. Since the students knew many of the kids, they knew whom they wanted to rescue first, and they had made a list. These were not the most adoptable kids, but the ones at greatest risk. They chose Jamie, Esther, Victoria, Joey, and Anna. Ethan was a newborn who was not on their list. He became our bonus kid. He had just arrived with a cleft palate. Marcia saw him and knew that the orphanage staff would not feed him. Newborns do not last a week without feeding. She felt that she just had to take him, and because she actually lived in the apartment, it meant that she volunteered herself to get up at night to feed him. The other kids were all old enough to sleep through the night. She never complained. I marveled at her energy. She just loved the kids and wanted so much to see them fed and cared for well. Taking care of six young kids with serious health issues is very hard work. These kids also had major emotional needs, and spiritually we had to battle for these kids. The evil one did not want these kids to live. He was bent on their destruction. We laid hands on and prayed over each child, sometimes daily. We claimed the promises of Scripture for them, and we prayed for them to be saved, not just physically, but in every way possible. While the students cared for the kids day to day, I began to take the kids to the hospital one by one for medical checks and to solve some of their long-term health problems. Some of these problems were very complex, and we had no health history. I talked to my brothers, Mark and Mike, often, and they helped me know what to do and whom to go to and what tests they needed. I got to know the Chinese medical system quite well, and I learned who the good doctors were and who had compassion and who did not. I learned a considerable amount of medical Chinese that I never thought I would have to know. As a foreigner, I was the best advocate for the kids to get decent health care in China. Doctors respected me as an American and took better care of the kids than they ever would have otherwise. I also worked on the adoption front to try and find families willing to adopt these extremely needy children. Of course, God had to work in people's hearts first, and then I could communicate what I knew about the children, and God put families together with kids. When summer vacation arrived in July, most of the students wanted to go home. Thankfully, Sister Ma asked around and was able to find other Christian ladies to come in and help out. We began to have a full-time staff and not just students. We needed the church to make this project work long-term. Gradually, this ministry grew and God provided the resources we needed along the way. God also helped this tiny church to connect with other Christians around the city and even from other places in China because of the children's home of eternal love. As word spread about the orphans, especially in the Christian community, their network grew. At its peak, we counted staff from 17 different churches that came and served this ministry. 
No one could have foreseen this happening. I would never have been able to meet this many Christians from so many different little meeting points in any other way. God had his plan and wanted to bring people together and connect them and give them fellowship and let them see how big he is and how many different ways he was working around our city. So many of these believers were isolated and only knew a few other Christians. Many of them were very young in faith and had almost no discipleship, but as God brought them together around the children and as they grew to love the kids, it knit them together permanently and they all grew spiritually. This tiny apartment orphanage became a vibrant Christian community, and they studied the Word together and worshipped and prayed together, and saw God answer many prayers for the children in amazing and miraculous ways. The staff was so blessed and so changed by their loving the least of these. We also studied scripture together about orphans and how God cares for the fatherless and loves to put the lonely in families. We studied about children and how God longs for us to be like little children and come to him without reservation. We also studied what scripture has to say about adoption and how God adopts us into his family and loves us. We learned so much from the children, especially those with special needs who needed special care. God does not make mistakes. He makes masterpieces. Sometimes people think that having a child with special needs is a tragedy or a mistake. In some European countries today, almost all of the Down syndrome children are aborted. They are looked at from a financial viewpoint, and the would-be parents think they are saving money, but they do not realize that they have totally missed out on God's gift and blessing to them. These special needs children can be an extraordinary blessing. They can help you see clearly what really matters in life and what is not important at all. For these precious children, love is important, not looks, not pride, not what you can do or accomplish. They take joy in simple things, like we all should. They help us not take things for granted. I remember talking to one family who was contemplating adoption of a child with special needs. They had compassion, but they did not want anything in their lifestyle to change. They still wanted to be able to go skiing and hiking and water skiing, because those were the fun things they did. I tried so hard to explain to them that their life would change if they took this child. So many of us have things in our life that we do not want to give up, but we cannot see the tremendous blessing we might miss out on if we do not change. Fortunately, this family did go ahead and adopt this child. They were changed, and I know they do not regret it. God tells us in Scripture that He loves the least of these, the ones that the world does not think are important. Those are His favorites. He promises that whatever we do to bless the least of these, we do to Jesus Himself. He considers our love for them as loving Him. They are so precious to the Father. Because of this, Adam and I walked into hospital corridors when we were called, and we picked up discarded, broken little bodies who had been left there. One little newborn was covered in flies and filth, and when we finally uncovered her, we saw that her spinal cord had an open abscess. We cried. Medically speaking, her case was hopeless. No one wanted to help. We cleaned and bandaged her, gave her IV antibiotics, and prayed for a miracle. God did not heal her, but in caring for her, we came to love her. That was what God wanted. He loved little Mercy, and he had wanted her to be held and loved. We begged a neurosurgeon we knew to prescribe her some medicine to ease her pain. He did not want to help, but when he saw how much we loved her, he had compassion and wrote her prescription. She did not live long, but she died peacefully in loving arms with dignity. We rejoiced with her when she went home to heaven. I remember hearing about Mr. Gale. He was just a simple farmer who lived on the plateau about 40 minutes south of the city. 
A Christian friend found him in a ditch one day by the side of the road. He had decided life was not worth living and was waiting to die. When she talked to him more, she found out that he was in his thirties and married with two boys, but he had a serious form of juvenile arthritis that was getting progressively worse. In fact, his arthritis was so bad that he could no longer farm and do the very difficult manual labor required of farmers. He had little education and no other skills, so he could not support his family. They had already sold everything they could to try and get medical care for him, including their furniture, but it was no use. He had no hope left and no strength to get back up the mountain, so he just lay down to die. God saw him, and he sent his servant that way. She noticed him and talked to him and cajoled him to get up, and slowly she helped him make his way home. She did not have answers to his problems, but she told him about Jesus and prayed for him. She shared her hope with him. His wife and children were so grateful to have him back because they loved him. This family was the first in their village to receive Christ. Then another one of their relatives did, and now there is a church in their village. When I heard about this man, I was moved to help them. Adam went with him to a doctor and got some advice and medication to help him. Between new hope and some pain relief, he was able to plant some crops. Shortly after this happened, someone brought a three-year-old to us who was crippled by cerebral palsy and had been found begging on the streets. He was very dark from being in the sun so much and was seriously neglected. We did not actually have room for him that day because every unit was full and he needed special attention. We decided to look for a foster family to care for him. Someone needed to go to Mr. Gale's house that day and bring him more medication, so we even had a car lined up. As we prayed about this little boy, everyone decided that Mr. Gale's family might be the perfect foster family for him. Mr. Gale could relate to his handicap, and he needed a job he could do at home that would not be too strenuous. Caring for a three-year-old seemed perfect, and the salary he would get would help him continue his medication. We packed up clothes, a bed, milk powder, vitamins, and everything else that we could think of that the baby boy would need, and we put it all in the car to take it up the mountain. Mr. Gale had no phone or other way to reach him, so we just had to send the boy and ask him about caring for him when we got there. God had a plan for Mr. Gale and for this boy. They just did not know it yet. Mr. Gale was so thankful to get his medication, and even more astonished when we told him about the boy and asked him if he would take the job to foster him for us. His whole family was thrilled, and they all loved little Eric, and even the grandmother got involved in helping him with his therapy. Everyone is significant to God. No one is expendable. Whenever we thought about helping orphans, we thought about providing for their food, shelter, and medical needs. That already seemed like a pretty big thing to do, but actually God had much bigger plans. He planned to transform people's lives and even communities. We could never have imagined all the things that God had planned. After the first six kids we began with in 1995, God brought another 55 kids to us over the next seven years. Each one of them was unique and precious. We saw them transform and grow as they were loved. God also blessed us with a son, Benjamin, in 1996. He was born in the United States, but we brought him back to China as a newborn, since we had so many other little ones to care for as well. As the number of children grew, the church also grew. The church in Qian in the 1990s saw explosive growth. The church that had started out next door to us soon outgrew their apartment and had to rent rooms. At its peak, this church had over 1,000 members. Part of the reason for this growth was the ministry to the special needs children. 
Many people heard about the orphans and were curious and would stop by and ask questions and then want to see the children. Very few people witnessed this and came away unchanged. The children's lives touched so many people. These were not nameless orphans, but joyful, hopeful, rambunctious children. People's prejudices against orphans began to erode as they met them in real life and found them to be just like their own children. The community began to change in their attitude toward orphans. The same community that had not one willing foster family in 1994 had about 25 foster families willing to take special needs orphans into their homes in 1999. God changed people's hearts. Individual families were also transformed. In 1999, we were suddenly pushed to get the kids out of the orphanage and into foster homes. Because of the pressure, our staff responded quickly and almost every child was in a foster home within two months. Every single family that took in a child totally fell in love with them. But what we did not expect was how many family members came to know Christ through this experience. Many husbands had been supportive of their wives working at the orphanage because it was a job, but after meeting and knowing the children, they became much more invested in the mission and wanted to understand the motivation behind it. This led to their eventual salvation. This type of family transformation was not limited to spouses. Children, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and even neighbors were changed as well. God wanted the children spread out into multiple locations in order to magnify the witness to many other people. Some of these people ended up coming to church and hearing the gospel because of knowing just one of these children. In fact, several foster families even started churches in their homes after having their families changed, and sometimes this was the only church in the entire village. God brought blessing to these places because they took care of His beloved children. Most of the children at the Home of Eternal Love were adopted or permanently settled by 2002, and the state orphanage system changed in China. The state now has the resources it needs to care for orphans adequately. The local church had also grown and matured, and Adam and I felt that it was time for us to move on. We spent a couple of years back in Milwaukee at our home church, and our third child, Christer, was born. Amanda is our oldest. She was the first foster baby we had, and Ben was born in 1996. When Christer was two years old, we decided to move back overseas. As we prayed about where God wanted us, we looked along the Silk Road and decided to move to Xinjiang, China. This is an autonomous region that is primarily Muslim and is inhabited by a Turkish people group, the Uyghurs. They are the largest Muslim people group in China and are extremely unreached. We wanted to go to an unreached people group. The four years we spent there ended up being a very critical time in Xinjiang. We constantly had a sense that the time was short and that we needed to make the most of it. Adam taught at a local university and I homeschooled our three kids. We prayed about what God wanted us to do there. The Lord brought many people into our lives from all different backgrounds. Uyghurs, Han, Uzbek, Kyrgyz, Mongol, Kazakh, etc. The society was seriously divided and segregated. In particular, the Chinese did not get along with the minorities and vice versa. We felt that one of our roles was to bring people together and try to be a bridge to help people understand each other. Another ministry that Adam and I had in Xinjiang was the missionary community there. China was in the midst of a campaign to move all foreigners out of the various corners of this province and concentrate them only in the capital city. I am sure that this was in response to rumblings of terrorism and violence in various places, but it adversely affected missionaries who were furiously trying to complete a translation of the Uyghur New Testament. 
In the course of this campaign, many long-term field workers were expelled. The community left in the capital was in shock over this and quite discouraged. We hosted a weekly gathering in our home and reached out to encourage everyone we could. Eventually, I started a kids' club for expatriate kids to supplement their homeschooling. The kids' club offered group games and sports as well as art projects and even some choir events for the kids to perform together. The club allowed the kids to come together and to have community and be encouraged. It was always fun and very popular with the kids. I know that it encouraged some families to stay who might not have otherwise. I also had the privilege of discipling a few young believers. This group itself was diverse, but in Christ we are all one. Jesus is the one hope of Xinjiang. He is the only one who can bring together enemies and make them brothers. In 2008, I was able to attend the Paralympics in Beijing with three of my favorite kids, Nathan, Jamie, and Lisa Joy. Nathan came with his double prosthetics and helped me wheel Jamie, who had polio and could not walk at all. Lisa Joy, due to complications with her spina bifida, had lost both of her feet and could walk some with prosthetics, but she also mainly used a wheelchair. Jamie and Lisa Joy flew for the first time ever to Beijing, where I met them. We got tickets to the ping-pong matches, which progressed from two-legged matches to one-legged matches and then to wheelchair matches. The kids were amazed and impressed with the athletes and their skills. The next day, we saw wheelchair basketball. Jamie was in heaven. He had never seen a wheelchair athlete before. Not only the sports, but the facilities in Beijing really impressed him. He knew exactly how hard it was to be in a wheelchair in Jian. He had wheeled himself back and forth to school for the past couple of years. He knew about the lack of accessible curbs and ramps and buses. At the end of every day, he had to crawl up the stairs because his neighbors did not want a ramp outside their door. On the other hand, Beijing made a huge effort to make things accessible to these special athletes, and Japan helped them as well by sending in some special equipment. Because of this, we were able to ride on adapted buses and take the subway, and even take an elevator up to the top of the Great Wall for the kids to see it firsthand. We also toured the Forbidden City of the Chinese Emperors, and there were cool Japanese machines that could take Jamie's wheelchair and climb upstairs with it, even the ancient, uneven stone steps. He had never experienced access like this before. Many people helped make this possible, and it was an amazing trip. Jamie is now a more independent adult today because of what he experienced in Beijing. Nathan continued on with me to Chengdu after the Paralympics finished. In May of 2008, China had a very serious earthquake in Sichuan province, where many schools collapsed and hundreds of children were killed or disabled. We were living in Xinjiang and had felt a slight tremor, but nothing scary. I had Christian friends in Chengdu, who ran a school for handicapped children and were involved in earthquake relief. I asked them about bringing Nathan, and they were very excited to have him come. As a double amputee, Nathan is a great athlete and extremely good at finding ways to manage with his disability. Unless they see his legs, people hardly even notice he has a disability. My friends brought us to a major rehabilitation center for children who were amputees. These kids were just at the beginning stages of their rehab, with a long road ahead of them. Many of them had never seen an amputee before and were still dealing with the shock and pain of their disability. Nathan is great with kids and jumped right in, playing with them and showing them all the cool moves he can do with his tooth prosthetic legs. He commiserated with them about the pain and the scars. He patiently showed them over and over again how easily he can take his legs on and off and what tricks he uses to get them back on in the right way, 
and to make sure it is not chafing him anywhere. He was a big hit with the kids. One of the nurses then asked him to please come and see one man who was really depressed. We went in and tried to talk with him. He was lying in bed, pretty subdued, and overly concerned about how he would ever pay for his health care in the future. The government was paying for his care this time, but he was worrying about the next time. He could hardly wear his prosthesis because it was too painful. Nathan talked to him about the process and how it would feel in a couple weeks, and he encouraged him to keep trying and to build up his stamina so that he could walk more every day. They talked about various materials they could use over their stumps. By the end of the visit, the man even got up and came out into the hallway with us. He wanted to see Nathan jump and shoot a basketball. Nathan was a picture of hope for these people. He had made it, and now they could picture themselves making it, too. Nathan had been the little boy who had been thrown away as useless because he did not have feet. God had a plan to use Nathan, and not just for himself, but to bless many others as well. If God can use Nathan, he can use you, too. Notice how God often uses our weaknesses to help others or to reach out to others. Do you have a weakness that you could be leveraging to reach out to someone else? In 2009, we moved back to the States for Amanda to attend high school. She was going into 10th grade and had grown up almost exclusively in China. She needed to connect with family back in the States and learn to adapt to American culture before college. Our church found a place on staff for Adam in community outreach. I got a job teaching at our church school and was able to teach Chinese as well as Bible classes. Some of my Chinese students were actually kids from the home of eternal love who had been adopted by families in our church. I was blessed to be in their lives once again and able to help them connect with their Chinese heritage. As of this writing, Amanda has finished at Liberty University and Ben is attending the Milwaukee School of Engineering. Amanda is married to James, a classmate of hers from Liberty, and they have a beautiful daughter, Jamie, our first grandchild. The kids from the home of eternal love are all grown up now, and some of them have kids too. Jessica has a precious little girl, Jada. Anna has a little boy, Prince. And Maggie has a son, Marshall. Another generation has started, and the blessing continues. God has his loving hand on each of them. As part of his community outreach in Milwaukee, Adam noticed a growing number of Muslim refugees being resettled in Milwaukee, and he began going into homes to teach people English and to connect with them. As the enormity of the need for English teaching became apparent, he had a vision for starting an English training center in their neighborhood, on the south side near their mosque. Our church was supportive, and Adam found a storefront for rent in the area, and the International Language Training Center was born. The hard part was finding volunteers and funding to keep the center open and to get people in the community to come and study there. Adam was the right person for this job. He quickly networked into the Iraqi refugee community and had a core of students coming regularly to the center. As more people came, he shared the vision and the needs and God brought other volunteers to help. This ministry has grown a lot over the past seven years. There is a solid core of full-time staff and three distinct communities are being served, Iraqi, Somali, and Burmese. Besides helping refugees, this training center has also been a great training ground for missionaries preparing for cross-cultural ministry. Other volunteers had no idea how God was going to transform their lives through this outreach. Having just one close Muslim friend changed many volunteers and gave them compassion and understanding for these people and the struggles they are undergoing. Volunteers have helped people with language, shopping, learning to drive, filling out immigration forms, applying for asylum, 
looking for an apartment, finding jobs, filling out applications, getting their kids signed up for school, finding a dentist, and listening to their heartbreaking stories and fears. For most Americans, missions are right in your neighborhood. God has brought the world to us in America. We have more freedom and opportunity to reach internationals here than in many other countries. You can serve God without leaving home. Through his refugee ministry, Adam heard about a conference taking place in Turkey in 2013, and he decided to attend. As our Iraqi and Syrian friends heard he was going to Turkey, he suddenly had requests to visit their family members and even to bring them things. They explained how desperate the refugees in Turkey were, as they had almost no government aid and were not allowed to work. Adam did visit their relatives and brought them suitcases and funds to help them. One particularly desperate family member lived in southeastern Turkey. His wife and children were already in Milwaukee. Before leaving, Adam networked to find a Christian contact in that city. One organization provided him with a name and number. Adam went and found the needy father in Turkey and the Christian brother and connected them. He also really came to love the little congregation in this place. He visited there three times over the next couple of years. They have now built a multi-ethnic church with a heart for reaching the 600,000 refugees who have flooded in around them. As Adam and I have prayed about where God wanted us next, this church seemed like a great fit. The pastor there was very welcoming and has been encouraging us to come. We were moving forward with quitting our jobs and packing up our house and getting ready to leave. Suddenly, there was a serious coup attempt in Turkey, followed by a major purge of the military and the universities, right at the time that Adam sent in his paperwork to the Ministry of Education to apply for a work permit. We were not sure what to think, but there was no plan B. We still felt God calling us to Turkey. After a couple of weeks of silence, we talked to the university that had hired Adam to teach, and they said that they were still going ahead with classes and still hoped that he would come, and for us to just wait for the work permit. The local church also still wanted us to move there. Miraculously, in the midst of the purges and unrest, Adam received his one-year work permit and visa. We know that this was God moving on our behalf. We also know that the time is very short and that the Syrian refugees now flooding into this area are very open to the gospel. They just need someone to come and tell them. We have bought our tickets and are in the midst of moving. I do not know what the next chapter in our lives will look like, but God has promised us that he will go with us and that is enough. Wherever God wants us to be is going to be the best place to be and the most satisfying. Turkey is not the most stable place right now and Westerners were martyred in 2008 not far from where we are going. Many Christians have been killed in this area in the past. We are not naive about the situation, but we know that precious people are there, people who have never heard the good news and do not know that there is a Savior who loves them. The fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran. Our Arab brothers and sisters continually tell us amazing stories of how the Lord is working in the Muslim world like never before in history. Historically, this largest block of unreached people in the world has been extremely resistant to the gospel. However, with the Arab Spring and unrest all across the Muslim world today, and with increasing factions within Islam, Muslims are more open than ever before. In addition, we keep hearing stories of Muslims all across the Middle East receiving visions of Jesus. In Matthew 24:14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I truly believe we are close to the end when Christ will return. This is a key time to be a witness, especially for the refugees flowing out of Syria. 
Ironically, the extremism of ISIS pushes many Muslims away from their roots, searching for something else. Turkey currently holds the largest population of Syrians outside of Syria, so we weren't surprised God was calling us to Turkey. According to the Joshua Project, less than 10% of all missionaries actually go to unreached peoples, and only 1% of missions giving goes to reach the unreached. Certainly these statistics need to change, and we all need to do more to complete the task of world evangelization. I know that the Lord has called me to love Muslims, and I can't wait to see what he will do in the church in Turkey. Lisa Schidler, Eastbrook Church, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Eastbrookchurch.org This chapter has been narrated by Kate Robinson.